Welcome back to So What Does Judaism Say About? I'm Rick Fox. With me, as always, is Rabbi Mayer Beer. We want to take this opportunity to thank everybody in Eretz Yisrael, all the chaylim, all the soldiers, everybody all over the world doing everything they possibly can to help the Jewish people through this difficult time. And we want to take this opportunity today to express some of the feelings and some of the thoughts and ideas that we've, we've developed to understand what, what are we meant to do during this time and how can we be helpful 6,500 miles away here in America. And with that, I turn to my dear friend, Rabbi Mayor Beer, and I say, Judaism must have a solution to this problem as we have been in diaspora for 2,000 years. Now we are interconnected in the most intimate ways through social media. We know everything that's going on. Yet there must be a solution spiritually that we can have that will empower us to be part of this no matter where we are. Well, a solution is what we hope for. But even if we can't fully solve it, we can do our best to make a difference. A solution to what should I do? What's my part? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, for here's, what's not, here's what's not supposed to happen. Well, that's a shame. Let's Netflix and chill. No. We, 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 this is the inignorable Jewish issue right now. So what do we do? Yeah, and I think you're, you know, you're putting it towards feelings that everyone is expressing feelings that everyone is having. And, you know, we'll try to give a framework for this, see what things we can focus on, what points we can, you know, kind of let catch our attention and get held in, you know, the space in our minds. But I think we should introduce before we get into solutions and ways we can make a difference as to define the underpinnings of this conflict. And when I say this conflict, I don't mean this in isolation, but you know, we, we, as you mentioned, have a unfortunately very lengthy history of adversaries. We've been attacked. We've been brutalized so many times throughout history. And look for some commonalities in anti-Semitism. And once we identify what the sources of the struggles that we face, of what, are, what motivates our enemies... We're gonna have a better idea as to how to combat that. What yeah. we should do to, you know, present as as our reaction to what's going on. And it's hard to understand why anybody would be motivated to be an adversary of the Jewish people. It is it, it is hard to understand when you look at the cold, cold hard facts on the ground. You know, it it, it becomes a house of cards. Anything you could possibly say as to what's going on in Israel historically, this and that with all the, let's call them hiccups, mistakes, whatever you want to say, it's not going to hold a candle to the truth of how righteous this nation is and what they do for the world. I mean, that's that's patently obvious. Yeah, and, and you know, the spin games are strong, but, you know, when you look at some basic facts like the finances of Hamas are from a country that's hundreds of miles away from Israel. Yeah. When you have... Nations in the world, like Iran, yeah. which are devoted to destroying a country that they have no direct economic conflict with, no yeah. direct borders with, yeah. where you have where you have part of you know factions in the intellectual elite in this country who kind of spin the history and twist the facts in some of the most bizarre and strange ways. You know, these are supposed to be intellectual giants, and yet they say the most ridiculous things in the way they express their anti-Semitism, you know, there's clearly a motivation. So, you know, to, to this we turn to Psalms to try to 
hear the original expression of dealing with tragedies that you know befell the Jewish people. The Psalms is, is is the book, as our first writes in the introduction, in his introduction, in the introduction to his commentary on Psalms that he took with him throughout the difficult emotional times in his life. And Psalms was composed or brought together by King David, who did not have an easy life. And he's not the first king of Israel, he's the second king of Israel. But he had a probably the most traumatically difficult life of any of the Jewish patriarchal figures. Yeah, and, and also this sensitivity to leave us with a legacy that we could relate to. Yeah. You know, Thomas says there there are ten authors, ten you know, ten authors in the compilation of Psalms. And in fact, the ones we're quoting from are not actually written by King David. They're written by Asaf. Lead his, musician. His, his, oh, his lead, I was going to say his general. It's his musician. Lead musician. Lead the Levite musician of the uh, of the, the era. lead musician performed at the inauguration of the temple in Solomon's time. Wow. Yeah. Story for another time. The John Williams of the Leonard <laughs> Bernstein of the Talmud. Sure. It's more like you know Leonard Bernstein is the Asaf of his age. But yeah, I hear. Yeah, well, well, that's yeah. yeah, yeah. I hear that. He's the OG. Right. Uh, in, in any case, so in chapter seventy nine of Psalms, the psalmist writes. They have given the corpse of your servants as food to the fowl of heaven, the flesh of your devoted ones to the beasts of the earth. This is referring to victims, Jewish victims of and massacres. Yeah. yeah. And Rav Hirsch in his commentary writes, however grievously the people of Israel may have sinned against God, they were still avadach and chasidacha, your servants and your devoted ones, compared to the nations to which they had succumbed. Again, to your point that the Jewish people, for all they've done wrong, still deserve a gold medal for their morality. Right. And it was only because the children of Israel were indeed, once again, this term, avadach and chasidacha, your servants and your devoted ones, that God punished them even for such errors as when unpublished in other nations, where they were far more prevalent than in the midst of Israel. It was with this in mind that the nations have slaughtered them. By conquering the land of God, profaning his sanctuary, destroying his temple, and murdering his servants, they thought they had triumphed com- completely over the Jewish God. Meaning it's a war against God and godly concepts. We've spoken about this before in reference to Nietzsche and then the upcoming of the rise and fall of Hitler who took Nietzsche's words. We, we, we dealt with this before. It's, it's, it's the Jewish people representing morality and consciousness of the world, which for some reason, and this I do not understand, certain people cannot tolerate that. I don't know, I don't, can't fathom it, but that's what he's saying. So let's look at Rav Hirsch's take on that sure and of course is what era remind us so this is mid 1800s and what's going on historically in the Jewish people at this point in time this is this is interesting because refresh's you know immediate surroundings in germany in the mid 1800s was a you know a, a part of the enlightenment where restrictions against the jewish people were lessening but at the same time in eastern europe you had terrible things going on and there certainly particularly, was in, particularly still, in eastern europe yeah you, there certainly was an enormous amount of anti-Semitism. And, you know, so these chapters, I'm, I'm quoting from chapter, I quoted from chapter 79, now I'm quoting from chapter 83. These are chapters which many people like to read yeah. during these unfortunate times. Yeah. Chapter 13 is another another one of I these. I mean, I've heard you say before that, you know, because I've asked you, Tehillim, Psalms with the silent P, uh, they're in everything. They're in the daily prayers, they're in the introduction to the daily prayers. They're in the praises of God called Hallel that we sing on happy days. And I asked you, everything just seems to be Psalms. And you poetically answered, well, it's the entire gamut of human emotions. So it's all in there. So finding the ones that are the correct possible 
probable response is what's going on here. So tapping into the whole emotional experience, that was a beautiful answer. There's a, um, on, to your point, Rav Asher Weiss, one of the leading rabbis in Israel, uh, said that he would he recommends to soldiers who, you know, say want to say goodbye to him or, you know, in his community before they leave to the front lines, take a little Tehillim with you. If you have five minutes, you have two minutes, look at a chapter and reflect on it. You can do it in English, you can do it in Hebrew, whatever you're comfortable with. And we're going to hear what that does not only to you in the moment personally, but we're also going to hear how that affects the Jewish people globally. Yeah. So moving on, so to your to the point you raised a minute ago, the psalmist writes, this is in chapter 83, for behold, it is your enemies that are in uproar and that spread the hatred of you. They have raised their head. So we have this language of your enemies, oyevecha, umisanecha, and those that hate you. Rav Hirsch writes, in the final analysis, the fight of Israel's enemies is not directed against us, but against you, that is, against God himself. God stands in the way of men and nations with his absolute power as a ruler and with the absolute requirements of his moral law, for both of which he has sent Israel as a memorial and messenger among the nations. Judaism, with his concept of the invisible God and with its idealistic views of the world and of life as a whole, has always been thoroughly hated by those who capitalize upon the degeneracy and corruptibility of man. Wow. So, you know, if that's your mission, that's what that's what is your path to power, the Jewish people represent a roadblock and a stumbling block in your way to having your evil succeed. And 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 there's also, maybe it's not the right time to discuss this, but there's also sort of the apathy aspect or the sort of neutrality aspect, right? Oh, I'm Switzerland. I will I will be passive in this, but I'll capitalize financially from this. That's that that's a different type of hatred for the Jewish people as well. Right. That's that's a, a form of cynicism in dealing with this. And yet, you know, we do have to appreciate when there are governments and governmental bodies and, you know, media groups that do take a strong stance in our favor. And, you know, it behooves us on it behooves us to appreciate the stance that those people take, even when sometimes it's unpopular. Yeah. The getting back to the you know chapter 79 in Psalms, the psalmist writes, why should the nation say, where is their God? Let him be recognized among the nations before our eyes as vengeance for the blood of your servants that has been shed. In essence, what the psalmist is writing is that the revenge that we seek is that people recognize God. If the battle against us is a, is under, is the force underlying the battle against us is a mission seeking to diminish the godliness of the world, the revenge that we seek is when that godliness is restored. That is in some way going to avenge the blood of those lost when we have, so to speak, the children of the descendants of these evil people who are recognizing God. Right. That is the ultimate revenge that we seek. It's not a, you know, you killed us, let's see how many, let's see how many right. we can kill in, in return. Have we seen this in Germany in the last 75 years? I would, Presumably I would, everybody looking at it is the grandchild of, an, of, of a Nazi or Wehrmacht and, member and yet, at some point. I think a lot of Nazis would be horrified by, you know, how anti-Semitism is illegal in Germany. Right. Now, I'm not saying that they're perfect, right? but those are the things that we look forward to. Two days ago, we had the Brandenburg Gate, which in, you know, it was one of the hallmarks of Berlin. You, you've seen the picture with the, with the huge red Nazi symbols coming down. Two nights ago, three nights ago, I think still, the, back, the front and back is covered in beautiful blue and white lining up, you know, a recognition of where Germany stands. And there's nothing that would churn the stomachs of Nazis more than that, yeah. and that's the revenge we seek. 
Yeah. We're not seeking to kill their grandchildren. We're seeking to convert their grandchildren to ethical people, to becoming eth- ethical right. people. Right, right. And truthful people. It's truthful also. Yeah. There's a truth aspect here that has to be acknowledged. So now that we've kind of framed yeah. a little stark how we've done it, but I think appropriate at the time. Yeah, sure. Some of the underlying you know, motivations behind our enemies, what can we do about that? So here we are, we're, we're either 6,000 miles away or 100 miles away, or we're not in the military, right? You could be, you know, my wife is one of eight. Her seven siblings are, are in and around Jerusalem. They're not in the military. Her, her father's too old. Her siblings either also too old. Our, our cousins are too young. What's their role? You know, it doesn't have to be a distance thing. It's also if I'm not on the front lines, what does Judaism say about how I can be productive? And we're not only talking about for your own you know, um, your own consciousness. We're talking about productive, meaning how can I help? Yeah. So let's start with a very strong statement from Maimonides. Maimonides writes in chapter three of the Laws of Repentance, a person who separates himself from the congregation of Israel and does not take part in their hardships or join in their communal fasts, you know, these days that were convened to for the community to express the sorrow of some sort of tragedy, but rather goes on his own individual path as if he is from another nation and is not a part of the Jewish people, does not have a portion in the world to come. If a person cannot feel any empathy towards suffering that his fellow Jews are going through, has such a disconnect from spiritual values, you're so unempathetic at times of stress and suffering that you don't even care. You're a person who is amoral. You're a person who is devoid of spirituality. How so, could you not care? Right, how could you not? That's really it, right? How could you not care? And let's take this idea further, this idea of caring for each other. So, you know, this is something that you've mentioned a, a number of times, you know, kind of this, like, we all feel like we're family. We, you know, we, we're, we have a complex identity, but when tragedy strikes the Jewish people, people suddenly want to reassert their Jewishness. They want to express their Jewishness. They want to be overtly Jewish. What is the, you know, what is the source of that? So there's a, there's a, uh, I think it's a fairly well-known Kabbalistic concept from the uh, Ramosha Kortavoro. This is a uh, Kabbalist from the 1500s, wrote a book called the Tomer Devoro, where he explains an idea based on a concept in the Torah called Arvus. Arvus meaning a, an intertwining of responsibility, whether it be financial or otherwise. It sounds like it's borrowed from the financial term. Yeah, so an, an Arav is a, is a co-signer on a loan. So you want to take out a, a guarantor. Yeah, you right. want to take out a mortgage. Right. You don't have enough credit or income history. Right. So a relative, a parent can co-sign that loan. They're essentially taking responsibility There's something for, you, for you paying Even it. Even though the asset will go to the person. Correct, but they're taking responsibility for your responsibilities. Right. So we are all, to an extent, responsible for each other's behavior. Wow. And he's picking stuff from the Gemara that says, Kol Yisrael Raven Zev, Yeah, yeah. So he's, and, he's expounding and, on that? Yes, and this is an idea which is sourced directly from the Torah. The Torah says that um, the you know secret hidden transgressions of the Jewish people are for God to deal with, but that which is known to the public, we're responsible for. And he says that the Kabbalistic, you know, kind of structure for this idea of the interconnectedness of the Jewish people is such that we each, so to speak, have a piece of each other's souls in ourselves. And we can activate those, you know, shared components when we interact with each other. So this today... We can make them, like, vibrate. Re- 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 as a soul resonance. Exactly. exactly. So there's, there's 15 million of us, or 14 million of us in the world, 
And each one of us on some level has another person's soul DNA in their soul as we speak. Yeah. The the external SSDs of of the soul are limitless in space. So like soul don't state worry. Drives. Yeah, don't don't worry about them getting filled up. Right. You know, the external hard drives are, are not gonna they're not gonna run out of capacity. Is there a motherboard somewhere that they're all connected to? Yeah, that presumably presumably would be would be like you know God in the sense that we view the soul as being in the language of the Tanya Chelik al Kamimal, a portion of God from above. Yeah. So you know that could that could be you know the world itself is so to speak God is the place of the of existence. But try not to get too kabbalistic. Oh, I like it. Yeah, I do too. But you know I, I'm just going to keep talking. You know, I could I could, I could get lost. You, you might have seen it happen. <laughs> focus, but, man, focus. I'm talking to myself, not to you. But 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 we're. We are all interconnected, spiritually DNA speaking. It's not we're not an ethnic group. We're not we're not even a religion. You you don't have to be this is not a religious religious thing. This is a this is a reality of spirit. This is a reality. As much as there's a motherboard of components in a computer, so too we are all interconnected. Presumably we can affect each other then and and power each other up, etc. Exactly. And as Maimonides says, we it behooves us to activate that potential network. At, during times of tragedy. So how could you ignore it then? Are you, if, as someone who's ignoring it, someone who is ignoring, let's say, that feeling, are they, are they suppressing something? Are they suppressing something? Or like, is there a feeling that they're actively ignoring? Like, well, I don't like that feeling. I think they're suppressing their spiritual, their inner spirituality. If this is who we are, this is, this is our spirituality, this is our soul, this is the energy of our spirit, you need to suppress that. Like you're going to feel something. Every Jew feels something right now. I think so, unless they've you know either been totally they have they have a totally dormant connection to Judaism, or they've actively created that dormancy. Right. So how can we you know utilize this spiritual structure in a practical way and positive way? Yeah, practical so, and positive. So I you know and I, powerful. P P P P. Yeah. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna you know. I'm going to admit something. I'm not really good with an assault rifle. Just, uh. I'm just not. This might surprise you. So I am not going to go to the front lines. I, for a hundred reasons, you know, I have a family here. I have kids here. I don't know. I, w- I would be useless on the front lines. I am not currently in a position to do that. I'm also old. Uh, but what can I do? So King Solomon in Kohelas, Ecclesiastes, writes that when two people are near each other, they share warmth. But when one person's by himself, he doesn't feel any warmth. King Solomon, as Rabbeinu Nisim, a great rabbi from the 1200s, explains, is expressing one of the most important parts of community. So we understand that within community, we can all offer services to each other. We can offer institutions for each other. We can pool our resources and create charity systems and social welfare systems and synagogues and study halls, etc. We can also offer something which is invisible, like warmth. Two bodies near each other can feel the presence of each other. Right. right? You, there's there's warmth. You can't Can to this in Proverbs? This is in Oh, it's in it's in uh, Ec- Kohelis, in Kohelis, Ecclesiastes. So there's a re- he's talking about he's using the physical Idea of two bodies as a parable? Yeah, as a metaphor for an idea of community. And he says, if you care about someone, you can strengthen them. So, for example, you have an interview tomorrow. I'm your friend. Yes. I want that interview to go well. Yes, because you're a good friend. Because I'm a good friend and I care for your success. You want me to be successful? You 
feel my care for you. Indeed. And you are empowered, perhaps in a small way, but in a measurable way, way to be more successful during that interview. I have more confidence. You have more confidence. You're my hype man. You believe in exactly. me. Exactly. When a person knows that people care about them, and if, if God forbid you're suffering through a tragedy and you know that I feel some of that pain, yeah. that's a consolation to you. So we can use the great network called Jewish Interconnected Souls. And by feeling bad, by feeling empathy, by somehow emotionally connecting with what's going on, not only are we providing a measure of consolation to the people in Israel, but we're empowering them. Because when they feel the warmth that we care about, we care about the soldiers on the front line, those soldiers on the front line are going to have a little more courage, a little more confidence, and a little power up to do better in their missions. Will they feel this irrespective of a physical act? Let me explain. We're seeing a lot of beautiful, you could, you could cry thinking about it, all of the support that has been pouring in, including people sending let children are writing letters from America and they're and they're putting them on their tanks and taping them. That's obviously they're going to feel that. But what if I'm sitting in my home praying for the soldiers, saying psalms, for example, for the soldiers, for everybody in Israel, for everybody who's not on the front lines, who's just scared, I'm praying with people in Israel. Are they going to feel that irrespective of my physical contribution? This is my take. Is your take I'm not accurate? Quote, I'm not quoting sources. <laughs> okay. 100% yes. Okay. To me, there is no question that that, that that doesn't add something. I mean, isn't that what Moshe Cordovero is saying? Yeah. No, but beyond the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah is just expressing in advanced philosophical terms a reality. And the reality, and I'm, I'm sharing this from my experiences as a human being, not from my training in yeshiva or my certifications. From my experiences as a human being and as a Jew, the answer is unequivocally yes. They feel it. They know that there are Jews all over the world who care about their success. They're not some random mercenary fighting some Wagner group battle in the middle of some Central African country that nobody's heard of. Every Jew cares about what's going on. Yeah. And you're empowering the soldiers. Yeah. You're empowering the paramedics and the people in the communication centers. Wherever all the different pieces of the puzzle are, they know the outrage and the horror that we all feel. And if we continue to feel those feelings, we're continuing to empower them more. And, and, and the empowering aspect for us is you can do this at any moment. You can just stop what you're doing whenever you feel motivated. You're about to go to sleep. You're about to, whatever you're going to do. You're daydreaming in class. Instead of online shopping, you can just be like, one second, I'm literally just going to think about people in Eretz Israel, people in Israel, and just be with them for a second. We're saying they feel that. Yeah. That's something you can do at any moment. And it sounds like it's free. I don't think that costs any money, Rabbi Beer. It costs emotional energy. But that's where that energy is going. That's where it's going. It's not lost. I mean, that's another proof. You're expounding energy. I mean, even Newton might agree with that. You're putting energy out. Where's it going? If Newton had a uh, an understanding of the Kabbalah, I think he certainly would have agreed he with that. He might have. He might have. Yeah. I, I never interviewed him about it. What was his first name? Isaac. Ah, look at that. There you go. I thought his first name was Sir. No, that's I thought a, Isaac was his middle name. I think that Sir was a moniker added by oh. by his, his admirers oh, later in okay. life. Like Elton John. Equal, by the way. I thought it was the same. Equal. No, it's an Elton's middle name. Is Sir's first name? I thought it was named after Sir. Okay, we're well, taking the joke a little too far. Moving on, there, there is a way in which we can not just passively do this, but we can proactively do this, and that is increasing our harmony as a community. Our resonance, our, our wavelength, our vibrancy. But really, our 
you know, our togetherness as a community, mm -hmm. our commonality as a community. You know, they say two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> and that's a fact that's not going away. Yet, we still can, and at times like this, must improve the unity of our community. We're, and we're seeing that. Sometimes it's because of that. That is true. But if we want to make good on this, it can't just be a temporary reaction. It has to be a bit of a permanent reaction. The Medrash writes that in the times of Ahav, who was one of the wicked kings of Israel, the Jews didn't suffer losses in battle. And during the times of, for instance, Shaul, King David's predecessor, which was a far more observant period of Jewish history, they did suffer losses in battle. And the Medrash attributes this to one factor, which is during the times of Ahav, the Jewish people didn't slander each other. They didn't put each other down. They might not have been observant. They might have done you know, terrible spiritual, being engaged in terrible spiritual activity. Wacky behavior. Idol, idol worshipers, whatever it was. Right. But there was a sense of unity in the community. And that is key for us to, so to speak, keep the network up and operating yeah. in its fullest. There That's can't the be DOS. Disharmony. That's the DOS underlying computer program that makes it operate. The oneness. Yeah. No short circuits. So there's, you know, there is, you know, as we mentioned before, the motherboard of God, if you will, but that motherboard is going to be corrupted by our infighting. Uh -huh. And we have to keep... It's a short circuit. Yeah, we have to keep the unity up. There's a, uh, a beautiful idea from a Hasidic source, which I, I saw recently. This is from the Ma'ar Vashemesh, a Hasidic work written, I believe, in the late 1700s. Uh, there's a Mishnah in Tractate Rosh Hashanah on page 29, which writes that when the Jews went to war, there was a Kohen who was appointed to speak to the soldiers before they left to fight. Oh, I'm sorry. Ugh. We'll retract that. The Mishnah writes, <laughs> that, is a, that is a source we'll get to in a second. My God, my page is all scrambled. The Mishnah writes that at the first war, first war, that the Jewish people fought after they left Egypt, yeah. which was against Amalek, a terrible nation, a nation which is described in Jewish literature as being the nation whose mission is focused on what we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. Destroying all morality. Godliness and its representatives in the world, a.k.a. the Jewish people. And when the Jew Moshe stood on the mountain, raised his hands in prayer. When the Jewish people looked up to Moshe and kind of subjugated their hearts to God, they were then successful in battle. Did that happen because they saw Moses? Yeah. So what's, what's Moshe? What's, what's his piece of the puzzle? He's the leader. He is. Aaron was a great leader and Miriam was a great leader. Why Moshe? So this uh, Hasidic work says that Moshe's, the attribute of Moshe, the calling card of Moshe, that which Moshe is most famous for is his humility. Humility, exactly. Not that he didn't know that he was great. He knew he was great. But he was a humble person. He was an accepting and tolerant person. Very. So when the Jewish people look up to Moshe, what does Moshe represent? Humility. He is tolerant to other people. Moshe's hands are elevated above. He's looking to elevate those around him, not to put them down. He's looking to focus on the positivity of other people, not on the negativity of other people. Then the Jewish people are strengthened, and then they're victorious in war. So this is the key, looking to what Moshe represents. Not that other people weren't necessarily great in their particular ways, but we need the greatness of Moshe at times yeah. like this. Yeah. We need the humility, the sensitivity, the ability to say that even though we're right, because we always are right, yeah. other people are right also. That comes from humility. With humility, we can develop greater tolerance. With greater tolerance, we can develop a stronger community. And when we have a stronger community, our victory 
can be enhanced. Our victory can be empowered. So that's what we can do. And we can do that at any moment, at any time, with our full heart. And, you know, empathy and humility are not that far from each other. So we're not really talking about two things. Right. The humility know? causes the empathy. Yeah. The empathy causes the humility. Definitely. Now, getting back to the source that I just put out of order a couple of seconds ago. We'll end off with this. There's one final piece to this that I think we can work on. And that is there's a, um, a Gemara in Tractate Sota on page 42. Indeed, there is a Gemara there. Yes. The Gemara writes that when the Kohen, who was appointed to speak to the Jewish people when they left the battle, would start his speech. The first two words were Shema Yisrael. And listen, Jewish people, the speech would continue, enemies, this, that, and the other. Whatever the speech was. Two very familiar words. What are What is the emphasis of the words Shema Yisrael? So the Gemara says that in the name of Rabbi Shon Bar Yochai, that God tells his Jewish people, if you simply connect to Shema Yisrael every morning and every evening, that will give you the ability to be victorious in battle. What is Shema Yisrael besides there being a very famous Jewish expression? Well, we, we, we have a th- six-part series on this, Rabbi Beer, so we should hyperlink to that in the bottom of this. But Shema Yisrael, in, in its most, let's call it, uh, its distilled form, is the total acceptance that the world is operating in and, in and within a total godly existence, including the bad things, which may be hard to relate to, but that's what's happening. Well, you and the Maral must share similar DNA, because that is, what the, that is how the Maral explains the Gemara. My soul and his soul are intertwined. There you go. There you go. So now you're taking it through time as well. I'm going to have to think about this. Okay. It's not just a global phenomenon. Ramosha Kodavar never said that it was... I agree with you. I, I, you know, I just, I failed to express that point, which you, which you just stuck in. Kudos to you, sir. So as you just mentioned, the Maral says that this idea of Shema listen, Israel, Hashem, the aspect of Hashem, which we, we understand to be the kindness of God, Elokeinu is also the God that we see during times of judgment or justice. Difficult times. Or difficult times, yeah. exactly. Is Hashem Achad is all really kindness. It's all, even though we have a hard time understanding it, as it's happening, it's the most difficult to understand. You know, in retrospect, sometimes it's a little easier to see why terrible things happened. But even then, not always. But if we can say as a matter of faith, everything that happens, happens for some reason under the control of God for an ultimate good, Together with our reaffirming our community ties, we're connecting both to God, we're connecting to the Jewish people, we're connecting our spirituality, so to speak, upwards towards heaven, outwards towards our people. We are strengthening our interconnectedness. We are, by that, doing all that we can to empower those at the front lines and those that are doing the direct, most difficult job of of the current situation that we're going through. And... Acknowledging again one more time here, just thank you to all of all of the people in Israel who are doing everything they possibly can on the front lines, support staff, people of the people of Israel who are coming together in, in unprecedented ways to support each other. And then the resonance here in America globally of everyone doing what they can and channeling our emotions positively to be proactive. I we hope that this that this message allows everybody to to be motivated that there is so much we can do at any moment. And I give us, God willing, a blessing to have the strength to do so. And we will see the Jewish people prevail, God willing, quickly.